0: At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, this morning, we are going to be kicking off a new sermon series that is going to take us the next three weeks through sections inside of Matthew chapter 21. 22 and 23. And the series that we're going to be in is a series that we have titled The Father Heart of God, because inside of these verses, we're going to see God's heart for his children, his heart for you and me. And so we'll see that over the next number of weeks. But I want you to know this. Matthew 21, 22, and 23 is a very rich section of God's Word, and there's a lot in there. And so we'll be skipping a few verses as a part of this series, but rest assured, in the month of August and September, we have two other series that will be looking at some other things inside of Matthew 21 through 23, and so eventually, we will cover all of the verses in that section. But we're going to kick off over the next three Sundays by looking at the Father Heart of God from Matthew chapters 21 through 23. Now, when we talk about the father heart of God and we talk about God as our heavenly father, admittedly, that is a topic that brings up some emotion inside of us because all of us have some experience or lack of experience with our earthly father that flavors how we think about our heavenly father. In some instances, we had a wonderful relationship with our earthly father. And in other instances, we had no relationship or an abusive relationship with our earthly father. And depending on what our experience was with our earthly father, it has the tendency to impact the way we think about our heavenly father. But here's what I want to encourage us with. When we talk about God as our heavenly father, we do not talk about God mirroring our earthly parent. But we're talking about the perfect expression of a father, and everything on this earth is merely a shadow or worse. What I mean by that is, when we think, if we had a great relationship with our earthly father, know that our relationship with our heavenly father is even better. And if we had a a rough relationship with our earthly father, know that that's a tragedy, but that there is still a fatherly relationship that is the best possible available for you relating to the God who created you, who invites you to call him Father. Now, when I think about that for myself, I I think about uh, the blessing that I have that I had a wonderful earthly father. And I can think of a number of different illustrations and expressions of his love towards me, but I'll tell a story. I've I've shared this before. Some of you have heard me say this, but to me this is the quintessential moment of of my dad. When I think of my dad, I think about this story. And it goes back to the the Christmas season of 1991, my senior year in high school, and I was playing basketball, and I was in the midst of a shooting slump. And in the midst of that, I was beginning to get really discouraged. And even though we, we won a game the night before, I heard some people criticizing my shooting ability walking out of the gym as I was leaving that day, and I was just a little bit crushed. Now, I remember the next morning... Uh, early on, there's a knock at my bedroom door, and it's my dad. And he says, hey, come on, let's go to breakfast. And you know where we went? We went to Grandy's. Anybody remember Grandy's? Uh, we went to I got a woohoo for Grandy's. How about that? Um, if anybody's looking at starting a franchise, apparently East Norman is ready for such a thing. But um, we went to Grandy's, and we sat down, and we had breakfast. And over breakfast, we didn't talk about shooting form and those kinds of things or strategy Uh, But my dad just told me that he loved me and he believed in me and he was super proud of me. And I went out that night. I had really the best game of my senior year that night. I think about that that gift that God gave me in my earthly dad. But, But here's the thing. Even as great as that experience was, it's merely a shadow for the greatness of our God. Our heavenly Father is greater even still. And over the next three Sundays, we're we're going to see some expressions of the Father heart of God for each of us inside of Matthew 21 through 23. And we're going to kick off that study today by looking at a parable that Jesus teaches in Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. So if you have a Bible, open up to Matthew 21, verse 33. And In just a moment, I'm going to read this parable that Jesus teaches for us, and then we'll spend some time in the rest of our our morning together unpacking that and understanding more what it means and how it connects to our life and to the Father's heart for you and the Father's heart for me. But I want to begin by just reading these verses for us. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 33. Jesus is speaking, and He says, He says, Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower, and he leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants, and they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, Jesus says, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus says this to the chief priests and to the Pharisees who had gathered around him, who he was interacting with, who he was telling this story to. Well, those chief priests and Pharisees respond and said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death, and he will let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be prophet. Now, friends, in these verses, we see something about the Father heart of God. But before we, we look at the application of this story, I want us to just review it a bit, because this parable that Jesus teaches, known as the parable of the tenants, uh, is a, a very, comes at a very critical point in Jesus' ministry. Now, parables were a common thing that Jesus used to teach. Uh, he would share them in, in conversation to answer questions, and He would share them as illustrations inside of sermons. And so, when we, anytime we see a parable that Jesus teaches, it's important for us to look at the context. When did He use it, and what was He trying to say as He used that parable? Well, the particular context of Matthew chapter 21 is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in the last week of his earthly life. See, we remember on Palm Sunday, Jesus entered into Jerusalem to a triumphal procession. But after he hit the city, he immediately went to the temple area. And when he gets to the temple area, he sees that people are, are using the temple area for their own gain. And so he clears out the temple. And when he clears out the temple, the Pharisees and the chief priests who oversaw that temple region were incensed. And they, they look at Jesus and they say, Jesus, by what authority are you, are you doing this action? You're, you're on our territory, they were saying. Why is it that you're messing with our system, and with our stuff. And so Jesus begins to respond and talk about where His authority comes from to enact that judgment, where His authority comes from to speak with such truth. And the parable that we just read is a parable that is given as response to the question, where does your authority come from? Now, when we think about a parable, it's important also for us to know what a parable was. Parables were not true stories. In other words, they they weren't historical events. That's why there's no names mentioned. When Jesus tells a parable, he talks about there was this father who had a son. There was this landowner who had some tenants. There was a shepherd who had some sheep. There was a woman who had some coins. they're, They're generic stories. They weren't true stories. They were a generic story. But these stories, though they weren't true, they were always true to life. In other words, Jesus would would take a story and he would tell it, and the people who heard it would understand exactly what he was getting at because he was describing a reality that they were very familiar with. And this is the same in the parable of the tenants because Jesus tells this story while he is in Jerusalem. And here's something you need to know about Jerusalem. Jerusalem was an area that had a lot of wealth. It was a big city, and there were some people there who had a lot of resources. But it was not an area that was especially great at agriculture or farming because it was sitting on the top of a very rocky mountain. And so people who had resources in Jerusalem would often have a plot of land in another area of the country where they would farm and they would hire servants or tenants to farm that land. And then, when the harvest came, those servants who had farmed that land for the landowner would give the landowner the harvest, and the landowner would pay them their wage. This was a very common thing. Incidentally, people in Jerusalem often had plots of land that they farmed up in the region of Galilee, where a lot of Jesus' ministry was, because there was a more fertile farmland in that area. And so, Jesus tells a story that they're quite familiar with the story of a landowner who lived in a place like Jerusalem who had a plot of land in an area like Galilee or some outlying area where they were farming, and they drew a crop. Now, when the harvest came, what happened was the owner in this parable that Jesus tells sends his representatives up to those tenants to collect the harvest. But the tenants who had farmed that land don't want to give up the harvest. And so they mistreat the representatives of the owner that he had sent to collect that harvest. And they they killed one. says they they beat others. They they stoned others. I mean, a total disrespect for the owner of that land, a total rejection of his calling due the harvest that had come. So what does the owner do in response? Well, the, the owner in response sends more. He sends more representatives to that area. And they go and they ask for the harvest and The tenants who are working that field, they they don't give it up. They they immediately respond again in a hostile way. And so the owner of the land decides to take a very radical step. And he says, I'm going to send my very son, my, my flesh and blood, I'm going to send him up to this plot of land to collect the harvest. But the tenants were still having none of it. And they see the son who comes and they think, if we get rid of the son, then there will be no error and we ultimately will get the full field. And so they ultimately take the son out of the vineyard and they kill him as well. Now, this is the story that Jesus tells. Now, what is the the meaning behind this story? We're going to draw some applications in a moment, but it's helpful for us to, to understand what Jesus was really getting at. And there's something that you need to know about the original audience. Remember, these were stories that were true to life that they could automatically connect with. And any time in first century Israel, somebody is telling a story, and in that story, there's a landowner and a vineyard, the most common association that people would have is the connection between God and Israel. In a number of different passages in the Old Testament, Israel is represented as God's vineyard, and God is represented as the owner of Of that vineyard. Places like Isaiah chapter 5 talk in this direction. So when Jesus begins talking about a vineyard and an owner of that vineyard, people's brains in the first century would move towards, this is talking about God and his relationship with Israel, and that is in fact what this story is talking about. It would be like if I told you a story and I talked about a bald eagle who was wearing clothing that was red, white, and blue, what would you assume I was talking about? You would assume that I was talking something about America, right? In the same way, when a story is told in the first century about a vineyard and an owner of the vineyard, the people are thinking he is referring to to Israel and God's relationship with it. And Jesus is recounting the history of Israel, where God had sent his representatives to those people who had been rejecting those representatives for years now. You think about the prophets that God had sent to his people that had been mistreated by his people. Think back to the time of Elijah when representatives were prophets in that time and era, and Jezebel and Ahab, they they rounded them up for destruction. They were rejected and they were mistreated. Think about the prophet Jeremiah who was rejected as he talked about God's hope of a new covenant and his promises for his people. They did not receive the prophet Jeremiah, but they put him in stocks and they mocked him. They dropped him in a well outside the city and left him to rot. God's people did not have a good track record in Israel or in Judah at receiving the prophets of God. For, For years, they had been rejecting the prophets that God had been sending them. Think about even in the the next wave, as God begins speaking through prophets again in the first century, he sends John the Baptist as a prophetic voice coming before Christ. But what did God's people do with with him? They beheaded him, right? And so there's a, a history and a pattern of the leaders of Israel rejecting the representatives that God had sent to them. So what did God do, but God sent His Son. And as Jesus tells this story, He is talking literally about Himself. He says, for years and years in this story, God, the owner of the vineyard, has been sending representatives that have been rejected and rejected and rejected. So what has God done now? But He has sent me, Jesus says. But Jesus lets them know that He knows what's ultimately going to happen is that they will drag him outside the vineyard. They will take him outside the city gate and they will hang him on a tree, something that will happen in just a few days from when he said the story. Friends, as Jesus tells the parable of the tenants, he is talking about God's pursuit of his people and their rejection of him. Now, With that story as the backdrop, I want to draw a couple of of application for us today that help us to understand the Father heart of God in the midst of this parable. So the first thing that I want us to see in terms of drawing a principle out of this for us is this. I want us to see God's patient, persistent, and personal pursuit of people. Now, Now, friends, this is the second service, and I've... I think I've gotten that phrase right both times so far. I'm crossing my fingers that I'll be able to say that many P's again uh, before we're done. But but inside of this parable, what we see is God's patient, his persistent, and his personal pursuit of people. Now, where do we see that inside of this parable? Well, we see it in terms of the the landowner's heart for those tenants. See, when it's the time for the harvest comes... The landowner sends his representatives up to those people. And those representatives are mistreated, right? Some with the most aggressive thing possible, they were killed, but but others were, were beaten or mocked or whatever. And so what does the landowner do? Well, the landowner continues to send more and more and more. It's so important for us to to see God's persistent and patient pursuit of these people. Now, I want to go back and and just think initially to the environment that this comes in. Jesus tells this this story about this piece of land, um, and he tells this story, and this is a piece of land that was very well taken care of. What does he say in chapter 21? He says that this... This, this place, this vineyard, had a fence around it. It was a protected place. It had a tower beside it. It had a wine press inside of it. This was a very well-provided-for vineyard. And in the same way, God had so well-provided for the nation of Israel. He had pursued them through His provision for a millennia or more at this point. In other words, as they obeyed God, he protected their borders and caused the crops to grow abundantly inside of the nation of Israel. He had led them out of Egypt. They'd been a front row recipient of the provision of God. He had provided for them so abundantly, it was a part of God's pursuit of them. And friends, as we gather here today, I I want us to be reminded that though we are not the nation of Israel, I want us to think about how the Lord has provided so abundantly for people who live in Norman, Oklahoma. I mean, has God not provided for us in a significant way? I mean, even beyond just the access we have to things like clean drinking water and food and, and a secure city and those kinds of things, think about the spiritual riches that God has made available to us. He allows us to be able to gather in places like this for worship. He, he has made His Word accessible to us and that we have translations, numerous translations in our language that are easy for us to read. Not only has he given us a translation of his word, but there are podcasts of sermons that are available for us to listen to and get educated. We have giant stores in our city that not only have books for us to read about Jesus, but also t-shirts that talk about Jesus. I mean, we have been surrounded by an abundance of provision, a tower, a wall, a wine press. God has given us so much. It's a part of the environment into which he is pursuing us. But not only has He created that environment, but He has continued to send representatives to us who have invited us to follow Him. His patient and His persistent pursuit is very real to each of us. To Israel, that was quite clear in that He continued to send His representatives. He continued to send the prophets. And even though... Israel rejected them. God did not immediately judge them. Now, now think about this. If you were the owner of a piece of land, and you sent your employee to go out and check on that harvest, and your employees killed that other employee who was sent out there, what would you do? You would call the authorities, right? You would round up the police. You would want to bring judgment swiftly. But Jesus tells this story to demonstrate that God does not immediately judge us when we reject him because he is patiently and he is persistently pursuing us. Even when Israel rejected Jeremiah the prophet, God continued to send others. Even when Herod cut off the head of John the Baptist, the world didn't end. God was patient. And he was persistent in pursuing Israel. And friends, the same thing could be said of us today God is patient, and he is persistent in pursuing us. Think about your own personal story. How many of you responded positively to the gospel the very first time that you heard the message of Christ? I'm sure there are some here that never remember any time rejecting Christ, and that's wonderful. The grace of God demonstrated in your life. But for many in this room who now believe in Christ, you didn't embrace it the first time you heard it. Aren't you thankful that God was patient and he was persistent to send not one representative to share Christ with you, but to send many? We see that inside of this parable, the patient and the persistent pursuit of God For us, it demonstrates the Father's heart. But not only do we see that patient and persistent pursuit, but we also see that it's personal. At some point, rather than throwing up his hands and saying, enough's enough, God sent his Son into the world so that we might know that he takes this seriously. He delegated it to no one. He came Himself. In the same way, friends, we need to know that God's pursuit of us is personal. Jesus came to provide a way for us to have a relationship with God that would persist on into eternity. The demonstration of the, the Father's heart for us is His patient and His persistent and His personal pursuit of each of us. Now, as we kind of see that inside of this parable, I, I want to just draw a couple of, of, of applications for us from this principle in, in our everyday life. And the first one that I want to draw is, is this. I want us to re- remember and thank God that he does not immediately judge us. You know, when you think about how great God is, isn't it, isn't it wonderful and merciful and gracious of him? The the first time we rejected the gospel, that it wasn't over for us at that point? When I was at vacation Bible school as an elementary school kid and I didn't quite get it, I, I thought that there were other things that were way more interesting and important in life than the good news of Jesus Christ. Aren't I thankful that at that moment God didn't say enough of you? I have, I have no plan for you, Mark Robinson, because you walked away from me in VBS at East Cross in 19-whatever. Aren't I thankful that God was was gracious at that moment? And aren't you thankful that at the moment of your rejection of the gospel the first time that God didn't say, that's it, that He patiently and He persistently pursued you to a later time? When was the last time you were thankful to God for His delay in judgment? The second thing I think that's important for us to see in the midst of this is that God sends his representatives into the world on a rescue mission. See, in order to get the gospel to you, God sent a wave of representatives, some that you rejected before you ever received that message. It might have been a neighbor. It might have been a family member. It might have been a Sunday school teacher. God sent waves into your life before the gospel clicked and made sense. When was the last time you were thankful to God for those waves of representatives that God sent in your direction. And friends, let me just ask you, who is it at this point that God wants you to be a representative in their life, take the gospel to them? Friends, God is patiently and persistently pursuing people, and He's going to do that through you. That's the joy that we have as followers of Christ be as representative. And sometimes we think, well, I don't want to share God's truth with others unless I know that they're going to believe and they're going to respond. But how do the majority of the situations end up inside of this parable? Well, they end up with the people not receiving them, and yet there's dignity and value and joy and being a part of presenting that. If if these representatives of the landowner would show up even to the point of death, certainly we can show up and represent Christ even to the point of being laughed at in the cubicle next to us. Or having an email that we sent deleted. Or having our invitation to join us at a church event rejected. Or to be the weird family on our block. Right? What What a privilege it is for us to be a representative going out, representing our God, and inviting others to come to Christ. And we may be rejected many times, but God in waves is sending us into a fallen world and inviting people to follow and to know Christ. Friends, those are some of the things that we see about the Father's heart and His patient and His persistent and His personal pursuit of people. But when we look at this passage, we need to also see one other point that I think is very important for us to see in this parable. And that point is this. Our persistent rebellion will come at a cost. Our persistent rebellion will come at a cost. And this is very clear inside of this parable. If, if the Father's heart to continue to pursue His people is throughout this parable, this parable also ends letting us know that that pursuit has a shelf life, that there will come a time that if we persist in our rebellion and rejection of God, that we will miss out on his gift and opportunity for forgiveness and salvation. Now, where do we see that inside of the story? We see it as Jesus interacts with the Pharisees and the chief priests at the end of the story. So after he, he tells this story, he interacts with them, and he says, hey, what should the landowner do Jesus says to the Pharisees, what what should the landowner do if his tenants treat his representatives this way, even killing the son? Well, the, the Pharisees don't bat an eye. They said, well, they should be judged. They should be dealt with severely. And this blessing that they were given to, to harvest this land, that, that opportunity should be taken away from them and should be given to somebody who's going to do what they were supposed to do. They're saying judgment should come to them and their opportunity should be given to someone else. Well, Jesus hears that and he doesn't, he doesn't argue with them. He says, you know, you, you guys may get a lot of things wrong, but guess what you get right? You got that right. There will come a time... Where it will be too late to respond to my pursuit of you. And Jesus then asks him this question, verse 42. He says, Have you never read in the scriptures? Now, it's anytime Jesus says that in the Gospels, he's getting ready to deliver a zinger, right? Have you never read? But this, this one in particular, I think, is just fascinating. He says, Have you never read in the scripture? And he begins to quote from Psalm 118. Now, What is significant about Psalm 118 is Psalm 118 has a very famous refrain at the end of the psalm that people were singing about 12 hours before Jesus has this conversation. See, Psalm 118 concludes and says, "'Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest.'" Psalm 118 is the very song that people were singing around Jesus as he entered on Palm Sunday. If you were with us last spring on Palm Sunday, we had kids walking in waving palm branches. Remember that? And we talked about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They were singing Psalm 118 around him as he entered the city that day. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, hey, have you never read the rest of that song we were just singing all together here just moments ago when I was on that donkey? You remember that? Jesus said the rest of that Psalm says this. It says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What Jesus was saying is he says, There's a, a capstone atop a building that has been knocked off to the side. There's a, a stone that was was meant for celebration in the construction of something that God is doing. But those who were builders, the the leaders of Israel at that time, have, have knocked it off. They have rejected it. They have tossed it to the side. And so what does God do? Jesus says, this stone that was rejected, he's talking about himself, God will use to become a cornerstone in something new. And that is the church. Jesus was saying, I'm going to build something new. The Lord is going to build something new around me. And and the only way to be connected to what the Lord is doing is to be connected through me because if you are not connected through me, Jesus said, there are consequences. Verse 43 lets us know. It says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Pharisees, and given to a people producing its fruits, talking about the church. He says, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus said, everyone must deal with me. If you trip over me, then you will be separated from God forever. If you reject me, you'll be like someone upon whom a stone falls upon their head and judgment comes. Jesus says this not with delight in his eyes, but with great sadness, I believe, for reasons we'll see in two weeks. With great emotion and sadness, Jesus says, I desire to to bring you together, and yet you have rejected me, and consequences are coming. Can you not see that? Jesus wanted them to know, and friends, I believe by application, Jesus wants you and I to know that though God is patiently and persistently pursuing us, if we reject and persist in our rebellion against Him, then we will ultimately experience the consequences that our sins deserve, which is death and separation from God. See, what we, what we see inside of Scripture is that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God every single one of us. And the consequences for our sin is death and separation from God. But that consequence of sin, God made a way to be taken care of by someone else. God sent Jesus, the Son, into the vineyard to take the penalty that our sins deserve so that we might be connected as a part of this new building, the church that he is doing, that will persist on into eternity. But if we persist in our rejection of that gift, then ultimately one day it will come at the cost of our separation from God forever. Friends, it's not a, a popular idea for us to talk about hell. But the Bible is quite clear. It will be negligent for me not to mention to you if you are rejecting the provision of Christ, then eternity is not a place of rest, but a place of torment. Friends, that every one of us in this room would understand that the clock is ticking and it will end one day. Now, I know some of you thought at 9.15 this morning the world was getting ready to end, right? But we don't know when that day is, whether it's through our life ending Um, through death or whether it's through the return of Christ, but we know that there will come a time where our persistent rejection of Christ will end in us paying the penalty for our sins. And friends, that would be a tragedy. Jesus tells this story inviting people to embrace him while they still have time. And friends, I tell you this today, inviting you to embrace Christ for the forgiveness of your sins while you still have time. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the the provision that you have given to us in Jesus. Father, you have made a way for us to be forgiven and connected to you forever. And Father, I pray that that we, everyone who hears my voice, would not be tripping over the person of Jesus or being crushed by him, but would, would hear this warning today and would instead embrace him in faith And take the gift that his death was on the cross as the payment sufficient for our sins so that we might be forgiven. Father, we we have time right now, but that time is not infinite. But we will live forever someplace. And so, Father, I pray that everyone who hears my voice will be trusting in Christ today for the forgiveness of their sins, for the hope of their eternity. Thank you for your persistent and patient pursuit of us through the person of Jesus. We pray that you would allow us to trust him now. Lord, we need you desperately. We trust in you this morning. In the name of Christ, we pray.